Welcome to the Everything Early Childhood podcast designed for approved providers, nominated supervisors and other childcare leaders. This fun, lighthearted and very serious podcast features weekly episodes on strategy, advice and conversations with fascinating and inspiring people from across our sector. Join the journey and have access to the tools and inspiration you need to create high-performing childcare businesses. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Early Childhood. We have an amazing guest for you to share their story today. One of the most passionate people I know in early in the early childhood space. And what I love about this person is her drive, her passion, and of course, her love of a good challenge. Um, we both share an intensity for high quality care in early childhood, and she is currently the head of operations at Thrive Early Learning. We are welcoming today Melissa Falero, and I'm so excited to delve into her story. Welcome, Mel. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. This has been in the works for so long. Oh, you are. It's honestly the truth. Um, So we've known each other for a long time, and you're probably one of the people that I see. like your resilience and ability to um, see something that needs work and not being afraid to put in the work to make it amazing. Yeah, thank you. I think um, I think I've always liked to challenge. So I think for my career in all aspects of it, it's always been like, where's the challenge? That's where I want to go, and I want to make the most impact. Not only for for me to keep me challenged and keep me motivated, but for others as well, and especially our children. I think that's really important. Um, you know, just seeing some really amazing services and seeing some services that need a little bit of work. I've always sort of teed in what can we do more? How can we help? Um, and just trying to take as much on as I can. So, yeah, it's been it's been a really fun uh, decade in the sector for me. It's really fun because I actually hit 10 years last year in the sector. Congrats. So I was like, oh, my goodness, like I can't believe I made 10 years. I thought like halfway through I was a little bit exhausted and going, is this really where I want to be, you know, having other sectors um, under my belt as well. And I was just like, no, nah, this, this is where I'm making the most impact. And I actually just love it. Like I just love what I do. So, yeah. And I I see that. I see that every single day in everything you do. And so I was going to start by you sharing a little bit about how your story started, but you touched on how you, um, you know, you sort of felt in between there and started to question whether it was the right sector for you, whether this is what you wanted to keep doing. Here we are at 10 years. I guess what for you kept you going during that process or during that line of thinking? I think I made change at the right time. So when I got to a point where I was like, I just don't know if this is right for me, it's probably I go back to all my leadership training where I go, you know, you need to keep people motivated and engaged. And to do that, they need to be doing something that they're passionate about, doing something that they love, Um, being challenged and, you know, finding their own niche in the way that they are as leaders and in the way that they are as educators or um, as teachers. And so for me, it was like 
I would make the change in my career that I needed to make to give myself that drive. So, you know, I went from small services to run a big service because I needed that change. And then I went into an area manager position because I needed that change. And then I went into a head of operations because I needed that change. And so for me, I would have loved to be able to do that in the same company the whole time. But, you know, opportunities knock on your door and you take them or you don't. And that's the decisions that you make. And so for me, it was like I think it kept me driving because now I'm in a position where I have a lot of voice and my voice is heard and so um, I can make the most impact now in where I am in the size business I'm in because I have that drive for change and um, I just want to take people on the journey with me really Um, and I just want it to be really exciting. (laughs) Yeah and I love that and I think you're so good at bringing people together so what are some strategies because you said motivated, engaged, challenged, you know find that niche and find what people are good at. What strategies do you put in place with your teams currently because you lead a big group of people um, at the moment so how do you lead people through change um yeah look I think I think the first thing I do is get excited about it I think if I'm excited I'm it's really easy for me to bring people on the journey with me um but also it's about really tapping into what excites them because what excites one person won't excite the other um I have a very diverse group of center leaders they are phenomenal they have been with me all year um and it's been really nice to watch them grow in their own leadership watch them grow in their own centers make changes in their leadership because they thought that running their service one way was the way they needed to do it. But now understanding their teams, they actually run their services a lot different to what they did 10, 11 months ago. And so we've seen some really positive, um, uh, I guess, we've seen really positive change in themselves, in their centres, in their families. And we see that through the feedback, right? We see that through the feedback of the families. We see that through data, you know, occupancy, all those things that we look at driving business. Um, But at the same time, for me, it's bringing them together and really collaborating. It's not my way. It's never been my way. It's our way. And so it's the way that we need for our own community. You know, what happens in one service is not going to work somewhere else because the community is so different. And so what we're trying to do and what what I've pretty much said that this is um, uh, non-negotiable is that every service is different and we will consistently run our services different. Mm -hmm. Yes, we streamline processes. Yes, we streamline certain things to make life easier for our people, but really the core value of that service is the community and we need to make sure it works for them. So them, like my team understanding that I sit in that space with them just shows that, you know, we are in it together, But at the same time, you know, I'm here to listen and help where I'm needed. So, yeah, that's sort of where I sort of go with that motivation. And I think the team really engages with that. And, you know, I I think I'm I'm quite friendly. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) Quite down to earth and honest. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's another piece, like just being honest, like where we are, like, you know, we're small business. And so, you know, we have a year of recovery, like we're rebuilding after COVID. Um, I don't have a, a back a, um, a back of house that's, you know, 30, 40 people. Like there's five of us. Yeah. 
And so we're really open and honest with our teams. And when we're struggling, we reach out and we go, we're really struggling with this. We need help. And, and that takes them on the journey. They're making the change without them even noticing they're making those changes because it's their feedback that we're feeding from. Yeah, oh, 100%, the feedback from them, feedback from the community, um, yeah. and that all drives the change. And I think um, that working in a small to medium-sized organisation over a large one does allow decisions, to, and tell me if I'm wrong, but does allow decisions to be made a lot quicker um, because you've got less people and less heads to sort of go through. Um, <clears throat> how yeah, do you 100%. feel? 100%. Yeah, I think, look, I've worked with small business, um, you know, eight eight to 15 centres. I've worked with uh, an approved provider who had three centres. Mm. I've worked with large organisations. Um, and, you know, prior to early childhood, I've worked with a multi-billion dollar company, so, which was nation, uh, international. So for me, coming into a small business, I do feel that um, we can get things done a little bit faster because it doesn't have to go all the way to the top and then come back. Now, in saying that, I was very lucky in the organisation that I've come from um, into Thrive where I had a strong voice and I was able to make decisions. But there were aspects in there as well where I had to go, okay, well, that there's a line of command and so that chain, you need to ask for permission, you need to weigh, you need to put in business plans, whereas now it's a lot faster. It's a conversation with the general manager and it's either yes or no or wait. Yeah. Uh, we can do that later. So um, there's, it's not so many steps to take. Um, which is quite nice. And I just think for our children, we get things done a lot faster and it means they get to, I guess, realm the benefits of it, um, of the changes. And especially for, you know, re recovering businesses from COVID, like I couldn't, I, I didn't feel that strain in a large organization because we had a, a really healthy business line. Um, so now coming into a business where we're like, okay, we're, re we're recovering um, and we need to invest because we need to invest in our people. We need to invest in our services. So we are doing some rebuilding Um it's a very different frame of mind to to be looking at and we need our people to do that and we need them to be motivated. Yep, and to be part of that process. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. You need everyone's buy-in. See, earlier you touched on um, the fact around that each of your centres, the community drives them. So each of the sort of you have set and core systems and processes to make mm -hmm. their life easier, but in every service things look a little bit different and that's guided by the community and the people. This is a really big thing in our sector right now with small to medium organisations, whether to have um, synchronicity and everything quite similar in all their services or you've got other organisations that go completely different with each service. How do you stay on top of um, what each service is currently doing and the changes between both styles? Yeah, I think um, communication is key with that. So I meet my centre leaders at least anywhere between once or twice a fortnight. So whether it's a centre visit or a phone call or a one-on-one -on -one, um sort of Google me, whatever that might look like and constant phone calls. But I think from where we are now, we are starting to build our systems. So we're in a place where we're like, okay, well now 
our business is growing, our headcount is growing, so we need to find sort of some streamlined approaches. Um, but we also give the ownership back to the centre leaders. So we might have uh, an interview guide, but where they do that interview and what that feel of that interview looks like, obviously, st- like is the ownership of that centre leader. Um, we guide through coaching and mentoring instead of directive leadership, where we're like, no, we want it to look like this. Um, and I think bringing it all back to really standardizing on what will our approach as a business look like versus what does the community need really separates those aspects of systems, right? There's systems that we will never work on and there are systems that we need to streamline. So we're currently looking at documentation. We've got an online platform. Yes, it's great. It works for some services. It doesn't work for others. We had a whole service that pulled their entire programming off the platform. And that was a decision they made. And we sort of sat there and went, oh, well, as a business, we want to use this platform because that's what we sell to our families. And, you know, that's the benefit of coming to Thrive. And so after having conversations with that educational leader and understanding where it came from, we understood what the barriers were. And so now we have a whole project running based on this system for them to really set it up the way they need it for their community and their families. So then that way we can actually get back online and sort of deliver on our promise. And I think that's where those communication platforms come from for us. Like we really communicate on what's working, what's not. And then they make the decision, you know, I had a centre leader not that long ago say to me, can, can we have a Thrive poster that says this is a chemical cupboard? And I was like, oh, I was like, well, Just you make can make one. that. She goes, oh, it would actually be really nice if it was a Thrive one. And I was like, okay, well, we can do that. Yeah. Um, but not really on the list of you know, standardising it across the organisation. Yeah. Um, and we're happy. We're happy to do that. And I think we're going to take it a lot on what they need. Yeah. Not really what we want. Oh, and so. how amazing that you can support their initiatives, even if it's something as small as a Thrive poster. But yeah. make the poster, share it with everyone. Like, you know, that might not be something that's high on the priority list, but an, an amazing initiative nonetheless that they can then share with everyone. Yeah, and that's it. And like, you know, we've got centres that all their children make their signage. Yeah, like you walk through the that. center and it's all written by children. Yeah. It's all cut out by children. And, you know, we don't want to take that authenticity away from them. And so if we need to, you know, develop something that allows that to happen, then that's going to be up to them to tell us what it is that they want. Um, and, you know, I'm not the expert in that space. And I don't really see myself in it as an expert in any space because I just want to work alongside them and make it as fluid as possible for them to be able to do their jobs Mm. Um, but also spend the most amount of time with their children. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. And we keep going on like we're in the – if we really nut it down to what we're in the business of, we're in the business of educating young children in early childhood. That's right. That's Um, right. And I think at mm. the moment relationships suffer. You know, I think um, especially our younger educators, they really struggle to build relationships. They actually don't understand what it takes to build a relationship. And so by putting all this extra pressure on top of documenting and requiring to to fill out a checklist and do this and do that, and it's not simple, Mm. and we're actually taking away from them doing 
the one thing they need to do for that child to learn, which is build the relationship, build the foundation. Yeah, yeah. And it, so, oh, it's so funny you say that because all of my research lately has been on Gen Z, <laughs> um, yeah. understanding them. Um, I I went to a, um, you know, the Christmas parties, obviously end of year yeah, Christmas yeah. parties, and it's one of the first times in my life that I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just am not in touch with that generation at all. And it just hit me and, and I said to Jake and I'm like, Jake, I just – it hit me for the first time. I don't I don't understand them. Like, And for me, I love to understand things and you're the same. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, right? So that's been just predominantly my research is understanding Gen Z, why and where they come from. And a lot of the research is saying that it's from their pa- – obviously, it's from their parents. So we've got to look at the generation before them – that created them into into what it is today. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny because I don't, I'm not that far away from Gen Z. Like I, I'm, you know, just maybe a decade or so away. So it's not really that far away. Like we were yeah. sort of growing up together. Yeah. And I think about the way I build relationships, and I'm, you know, I'm quite extroverted. Like I'm quite loud, and I love to have a good conversation. I could probably talk underwater <laughs> if you gave me the chance to. And so for me, I'm like, that was, and I don't come from a family that's extroverted. Like my, my parents were quite to themselves. They had their little friends group. Um, we didn't really go to big events or anything like that. But for me, it was, a, you know, it's just, I just feel that I need to connect yeah. with yeah. people. And so I found that love for children because I really connected mm. with them, even at a, at a much younger age before I was even thinking about coming into the sector. Um, and, you know, like I sort of fell into the sector. I always say I was just, it just sort of landed. I landed and it went, oh, I'm in early childhood. <laughs> well, um, well, how did you get into early childhood? What's your story? What's your uh, origin so, story? Yeah. Yeah, so I, um, uh, I, well, I started my career like any 14-year-old going, I, I need to work, I need money. And so I started at McDonald's and I was there for 11 years. And um, I had a phone call from, I used to dance. Uh, I used to dance flamenco and I used to do it professionally um, in Sydney and I used to be like the person that at every concert would be with the tiny top classes mm-hmm. like like Mel can you take care of you know class one because I need them to just be entertained while the other teens are doing their rehearsals so it would be me on the side of stage pretending to be a bird pretending to be a rabbit <laughs> pretending to be whatever I needed to be yeah. for them yeah. to just sort of be engaged and just stay as quiet as we could be while they were rehearsing. And, and that was me. And so then at McDonald's, I was the party manager. You know, I organized all the parties on the weekends. Um, I was the crew trainer. I was, um, when I got into management, I was the, the coach for the new managers coming through. Um, and so there was always this love for, for mentoring and younger people, mm-hmm. um, whether it was children or young adults. And so because I decided, okay, well, I'm going to do my Cert three and I'm going to do my diploma. So I did all that. I studied and I went into uni and I went, oh, <laughs> 
I don't really know if this is for me. <laughs> uh, I really struggled my first six months of uni, so I went back to work because oh, I was like, yeah, nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't do this. Um, and I got a phone call because someone found out that I was looking for work in early childhood. Mm-hmm. So um, a friend of mine, her sister was an area manager in um, for a large organisation, and she said, Mel, I've got a maternity leave centre leader position. She goes, I know you don't have the experience in the sector, but you've got the leadership experience, you can run business, um, and I really just need someone to sort of babysit the service. It's an exceeding service. They've got a great team. I just need you to just be a bit of the life of the party and go in and really understand. And so went in and I've never left wow. <laughs> the sector. Wow, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And, you know, like that gig sort of finished in six months. So I was really sad and I didn't have a great experience the next, um, the next role I took on. So I sort of, that sort of went, Oh, I don't know if I'm going to stay. Yeah. And I went back to McDonald's for three months and then ended up getting, um, a, a role as a, another maternity leave role centre director and that's when we met. Yes, so many <laughs> years then. ago now, I know, gosh. Years and years and years ago. Yes. Um, and then from there it's just been, you know, centre director in a smaller service, big service, standalone service and then um, operations manager and now head of ops. Yeah, so, so proud of your journey, yeah. so proud of you. Thank and, you. And I've loved following you over all these years. But drawing on your, I, I want to draw on like what foundational skills or knowledge whether it was from, you know, prior like McDonald's or, you know, your jobs prior or now, what foundational knowledge do you feel like or skills do you feel like you took on from each role to now obviously build up to the role that you're in now? Yeah, I think um, I think in every role I've had, I've had to learn a really hard lesson when I moved on. Mm. Um, so... When I back in my McDonald's days, um, I was really eager to be a manager, and I didn't quite get there where when I wanted to do it. So I turned eighteen, I was ready for management, and I wasn't getting promoted, and I wasn't getting promoted, and I was like, "What is going on? Like I'm working so hard." And it wasn't until I had a conversation with um, a restaurant manager who now is actually like the the general manager of of that um, licensee and we're still good friends and we always talk. And I said, um, and he said to me, he goes, Mel, the reason I didn't promote you is because you're not ready. Mm. And I was like, oh, what what do you mean? (laughs) I thought I was (laughs) ready. He goes, yeah, no. He goes, it's coming, but I need you to think about your leadership. I need you to think about your maturity in your leadership. Um, and you know, for me, it was like a kick to the gut because I was like, I've worked so hard for four (laughs) years and this is what you're going to do to me. Like, that's what it was like. And I guess from that to the transition into management, I was one of their longest standing managers at one point. Mm. Um, because you know, for me, it was like, I need to figure out what that means for me. And so I did my management courses and I really sat there and listened and I really found who I was as a leader. 
And that was my foundation. It was like, who am I as a leader? A lot of people, I always ask this question in interviews, you know, what's your leadership style? They say, oh, you know, I'm distributed leadership. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's great. But what else drives your leadership? Because distributed leadership is great because, yes, you want to work in collaboration, but there's all different aspects of leadership. And so, you know, for me, we always did, um, I can't remember what they're called, those um, little leadership graphs where you answer all the questions and then it tells you what leadership is. And I always like around the middle, like quite significant in all four quadrants. And for me, that was a real, like a realization where I'm like, I've really worked on who I am and how, and the compassion I have for others. And that's really important for me. And that's the same when I moved from one to the other, you know, I had a really bad experience in early childhood where I lasted six weeks in a row. And I sat there and I could have blamed, I could have gone into victim mentality and gone, yeah, no, really sit below that line and go, therefore, I got no support. I got this, I got that. Like I could have done that. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I said, actually, the problem I had was that I didn't know the sector enough. Right. So I didn't understand the regulations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so before I took on that next role, I sat and I read the operational manual, I read the regulations, I read the laws and I went, my next role, I'm going to succeed. Wow. Because I cannot walk into another role and be like, actually, I don't know that. And I'm okay to say, I don't know that, but let me go have a look. I, I still do that to this time. Like I get some tricky questions sometimes and they'll ask me, where in the regulation does it state? And I'll be like, oh, actually, I don't know. Let me go have a look, right? And then we unpack it. But, you know, that's because there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of myths out there. And so you have to navigate through all of that, right? And so I think for me from getting to where I am, the foundation has been really understanding who I am and really understanding who I'm leading. Love that. Um, Because otherwise there's no point. You never get past it. You'll always be in that rut, in that hamster wheel. Um, And my pretty much my mantra is don't make it complicated. Yeah. It just doesn't have to be hard. Oh, and in the early childhood sector, we have a really bad habit of that, overcomplicating everything. And instead of like, you know, when we add something, instead of auditing the whole process or the whole procedure, um, it ends up being bigger than King Kong. We need to take it back. If you're going to add something, audit the whole process so that it makes sense. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's just I think we've – I think in the sector we've complicated it as well because there's a lot of opinions that run. Yeah. Um, and everyone, and it's, you know, it's really awesome that we have such great advocates in our sector because we need that, right? We're a really undervalued sector and, you know, I still have friends that I've been friends with for 20 years that still say to me, I don't, I don't understand how you work so hard. Like you just take care of children. And I was like, no. Oh, you (laughs) don't. Yes, we do that. Yes, we do that. But no, like that is not just the job. Like it is complicated. We are highly regulated. um, So we should be. And, you know, there's so many more intricacies in our role. um, And, you know, I've had to really prove myself in my role because I never worked on the floor as an educator. Mm -hmm. And so I had to prove myself in all my roles. And so going back to these 
to my friends and family that have in the past have said comments like that. And that's because that is what we're viewed as, right? And so um, I just want to be that that advocate and that voice, really. Um, But it's interesting interesting you say that about um, not working on the floor and being a leader because it's something that not that I've been challenged by that, but what I am challenged by is that, you know, educators, teachers get put in this leadership position without any management or leadership experience. And and then and then they're like, well, you just thrive, you swim, you make this center amazing, you lead all these people, and then they wonder why so many people are failing, burning out, getting to those phases because they don't have that foundation of being able to lead a team. That that's hundred percent correct. I think my success in the sector has been because I came from outside of the sector, and I don't want to take that away from those that have thrived in the sector mm. um, because. I don't know if I would be the same leader if I left school, did my Cert 3, did my diploma and then went straight into an early, like into a service. Um, I don't know if I'll be the same the same leader I am now. Um, but I know for me and my story that I could do what I've done because I got different leadership training before. And so I've walked in to a sector that at the time was in an okay place. I found it an okay place. I didn't see all the cobwebs and things like that because I walked into a really good service. I walked in with really good support. I walked in with really good leadership skills. And so I was really much doing what I thrive to do, which is run business. Like that's what I was doing. Um, All the quality and practice piece was already done for me. Um, And then later in my career where I picked up a service that needed a quality focus, that's where my challenge came. And Mm. so I had to upskill. And so I spent a lot of time on the floor in that, in that role. Um, And I spent a lot of time working alongside the educators in my team and the teachers in my team to really understand what they were doing it. And I think for me, it's also that, and I say, you know, not everyone has common sense. Like we sort of use but I just say, well, what's right? Yeah. I, I don't want to feel like that. So why would I make a child feel like that? And I think there's a lot of practices that we do question at the moment because we're like, okay, well, if you came to my house, would I ask you to sit on the floor and here's a biscuit? Like, would I do that to you at my house? Well, no. So why do we do that to children in our services? Yeah. Right. And so that sort of, and I use a lot of those analogies around how I would feel about it. Um, and sometimes my team have a good giggle with me. They're like, oh, Mel, you're so dramatic. And I was like, yeah, well. No, but you need <laughs> to like, use those outside outside way. scenarios and outside experiences to draw upon. And even though, I, like, I'm the opposite of you, like, I just went all the way through, worked in early childhood, and that's yeah. my background and my story. But at the same time, I draw so many things things and I research so many things outside of our sector because yeah. if we do the same thing that we've always done we're going to get the same result right that's right and the sector's changing yeah. and so we're not the same as we were 10 years ago like I walked into a sector where you know um, I had a team who was highly motivated mm-hmm highly motivated they did some amazing things with these children and I didn't need to lead that 
because I didn't know how to lead that. I had an educational leader who could do that and she was fantastic. And I think back on from that team who is still in the sector and I had a team of nine and one person is still in the sector because we're still connected. Um, And that makes me really sad because I'm like, what went wrong over the last 10 years that nine, that eight out of nine people have decided to walk away and leave something that they were so passionate about? Yeah, let's get into it. Let's delve into it. what um? Yeah. What are their reasons and why? I'm, like, what happened? Do they have I'm you asked? Just burnt out. Yeah, but and, what is burnout? Um, like, I, opportunity. Oh, I know. Like, come on. Like, self care is crucial and so important. Mm. And I love what you said about even being a leader that it comes back to you first. And so yes. even with burnout, it comes back to us first. Like start yeah. to pay – I mean, that's my – you know, we've got to pay attention to those signs and signals and get ahead of it before it gets to that point. Um, but, yeah, what's your theory? Tell me your theory. Oh, I, look, I have, a lot of, I have a lot of theories about it. Um, I think, I think for, for those that I know that have walked away – a lot of them have worked under really strong leadership and then have not. Right. And so I think that's where they call the burnout, right, because they stop being motivated. They're not feeling supported. And so that's right. And so I think there's a lot of um, different reasons for that. I just think that our sector is now saturated by all these very tiny providers and not everyone's in it for good intention, right? We're not all in it for for the vision of the greater good of, you know, we want to create a sector that is about children, for children, with children, right? Um, And then there's the piece of our own value. So, like, you know, I, I read, I'm on all the social media because I want to know exactly what's going on, who's saying what, um, and I don't engage. Some Sometimes I might engage, but I normally don't engage. But I listen to those cries for help, and I'm like, there are some amazing services out there, right? But I also understand that they probably don't want to leave the relationships they've made, and so that's why they're like, help me so I can – fix what's happening where I am. And a a lot of that I think comes down to family structures very different now to what it was 10 years ago. Families are a lot more um, open and honest about what's happening in their own lives and very, I think, a little bit judgmental around what's happening inside services. They don't agree with everything that we do. Um, And I think that sometimes educators are not um, they don't have the knowledge to explain what they're doing in a way that families would understand. Um, play-based learning as an example. Yeah. Right. Yep. It takes a very um, well-rounded educator to really explain to a family what the benefits of play-based learning is. And I think that sometimes our educators can conform to what the families want mm-hmm. because they can't explain that they actually do do all of that, but through play. Yeah. And it's actually yeah. beneficial for children to do that through play. And so I think for them, they, 
the pressure of family, right? I get it. And then they start to lose the value behind what we do because they're conforming so much to those societal pressures. That's right. Rather than actually questioning, is this in the best interest of the children? That's right. Like I'm seeing a lot of um, at the moment we are uh, delving into our curriculum. That's something that we want to work on this year. And it was a really interesting conversation I was just having yesterday with my team around naming our curriculum. Now, our curriculum has a name. And I'm like, oh, you know, they're like, you know, it's not very attractive to the marketing and this company has this and this company has this. And I sat there and I had to sort of just hold back my my real intentions around like, why we have a curriculum? It's called the early years learning framework. Yes. Like why do we need to completely rebuild a document that educators just something else they have to read something else they have to understand all because our families want to see a school transitional program or a school readiness program or a school preparedness program right and there's companies out there that have these programs and they name it something fancy and they slap it on a on a um, advertising and that's where half of their enrollments come from because they do school readiness mm. Mm. right and so you have to sort of sit there and go, well, how do I do this to conform to these families but at the same time not lose my value of where play-based learning really comes from and the understanding of that. And, you know, Thrive last year did a really, um, we we went into sort of a, a space of reviewing our school readiness meeting for the following year, right? So every year we get our families together, we talk about that preschool space um, and we go, this is what you can um, expect from from Thrive in our preschool space. And we had to we had to really think about what we were delivering because I have a philosophy and I was like, I, you know, I want this to be very much families understanding that yes, there's a program, but the program is based on the early years learning framework. It's based on your children's milestones. It's yeah. based on your children's developmental needs. It's based on our community. It's based on you as a family. It's based on us as educators. It's a collaboration of everything we have and, you know, really thinking about the NQS and all that stuff. And so it was really interesting for my team to go back and put their presentations together and I was quite surprised. I thought at some point I was going to get at least one centre that I'm like, God, no, we can't present this. But I didn't. I didn't. It was actually really good. They worked together and they really thought about it. And we've had a great response from families. But there's always those families that go, well, actually, I'm pulling my child out because I'm going to the centre down the road who has a school readiness program. And they run it from three, uh, from, from 12 to 3 every day. And they sit down and they learn letters and they do this and they do that. And I'm just like, okay, well, if that's what you need, then... That's what you need. Yeah, and we find um, that to be an organisation that have families come that have similar values to you, one, the values have to be made quite clear and two, you have to be prepared for either the family or yourself to say that perhaps we're not for you. Yeah, 100%. Like no, no business wants to lose families. No. Right. That's that's the revenue stream. That's the cash flow. That's what's going to be able to allow you to um, to invest. But what's in your the cost? Yeah. What's the cost exactly. of keeping those families that are not a good fit to your exactly. culture and Exactly. And I think you know it's it's done really sensitively. Like you know we've not um, 
had that many families that we've had to say, look, this is probably not the right service for you. And I've done it in the past where I've had to go, actually, maybe we are not the right service for you. Um, especially when I was working in um, with my small approved provider, he had three services, but all three services sort of were run as separate businesses. So I really didn't, you know, intertwine with the other two. So I really ran that one centre. And, and that's where I had a lot of pushback from families in a community where a lot of my families were like, oh, you know, the centre down the road has a homework book. <laughs> and I said, well, we won't be having a homework book because they're four. And having to explain myself around child development. And I know, like, for me, I've had to do a lot of research in that because, yes, I'm halfway through my my degree and it's taken me a long time to get halfway through it <laughs> And because it, I really struggle with the whole study part of things. Um, but also for me to really en- engross myself in the knowledge of, well, actually, I really do believe in this. Like, I believe children don't need homework books because what they're going to do at home like they should be still playing. They should be still in those magical, imaginative worlds where they're doing all this. Like, you know, I've got nephews and nieces and I see them on the iPad and I see them, you know, do certain things where I'm like, oh. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, you actually really in those, in those worlds where you're really using that, you know, the right and left side of your brain and really working those muscles, we would have really creative children. Yeah. And then they're going to love the yeah. learning that comes when they go into that school system. Yeah. And I right? and, and I find so- I find with parents we have to almost put them in a future state, not a current state, because I think yeah. we've got to remember that that's all they're hearing as well is all their friends around them and how advanced their child is and doing this and doing that. But when we put them in a future state it's thinking about what qualities do you want your child to have in the future? If overall, what do you want your child to be? And nine times out of 10, families will say happy. I want my child to be happy. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got to look at like AIs taking over the world, like technology, robots. So what kind of jobs are they going to be for those children in the future anyway? We've got to have creative, innovative problem solvers, you know, children of the future for those jobs that don't even exist yet. That's right. And, you know, the the role of the educator to try and predict what's going to happen later, it's difficult. It's a lot of pressure to be put on for for educators, especially when the school system, you know, okay, some schools have those entry meetings or little tests or whatever they might have based on their, you know, whether they're a private school, public school, a, a religious school, whatever it might be. And, you sort of sit there and you go, if my child didn't get anything right on this page, but they were happy, they could socialise, they could play without needing all the support from an educator, they could settle in. Like, I don't think I'd have a problem with that. They'll learn all that at school. But how is that measured now? They don't see that. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. It's not. It's not we measured. Don't measure it. No, it's not. And so families and don't see how beautiful we, that is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've gone into a society where we have to measure. We measure success by measuring data. But we do that to ourselves as business, right? We measure our business through data. Yep. The business is not successful unless it's got a, a green bottom line. Like, well, actually, if it's still red, but it's not as red as what it was six months ago, 
We're actually on the right track. Yeah, we're going in and the so, right direction. Yes, you know, help. We're going in the right direction. And so I think um, I don't I, I don't know I don't have the answer for it, but I'm like yeah. I just need to reframe. I just want to reframe the whole. Like I'd love to reframe the whole sector and really teach families about play base and do all of that. Like this whole thing. And I think. And I think that's sort of where I came in where I'm like now small business, I can make the biggest impact. 100%. And so I'm hoping that with um, with my team that, you know, the sector will hear more about Thrive <laughs> and how amazing we are, um, but also really impact our communities and really make, like just leave that footprint. Yeah, we have and to. We want to do, right? It's just we just want to leave that footprint. Um, you know, I'm really excited to read the reviewed EYLF. Like, you know, even just skimming through it, I'm I'm like at first like at first glance, I'm like, oh, like this is another heavy document that we're gonna have to try and get our head around this year. Um, some of our educators don't even understand the, the framework. <laughs> yeah, now, like the current framework, let alone now give them 2.0. Um, but I think it's a nice place to start from scratch for some of our people and go, actually, don't, don't worry about that. We, we're just focusing on this now for this year and we're going to work on it. And I think for a lot of our centres, a lot of the principles and practices that have come through, we're already doing. Yeah, 100%. Because we already find value in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't think I've walked into any service in the last five years that doesn't have a focus on sustainability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it'd be very rare yep. to walk in someone that doesn't have that focus. So I think for a lot of it, we're all gonna, we're already going to find value in it, and that's going to make life that little bit easier. It's just making just it clear, that I making think. It- because yeah. like yeah. It, it is like when we go into like service is the same thing like we you know make sure we're doing those four things cultural indigenous mm. sustainability well-being but it's just making mm. it putting it in black and white writing to say That's hey right. guys like we'd love you this is current this is based on research and this is what we'd we need you to be focusing on yeah 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 i'm excited i'm excited to read it yeah, well, from what I read, yeah. from what I read this morning, I haven't finished, but um, mental well-being is a big thing. So not just physical well-being, mental well-being, um, Indigenous perspectives. Um, so they're the two key things that I saw that were really big differences and obviously adding to those um, principles and practices, as you said. Um, my thing is like obviously it's 10 years that we've had the, the existing EYLF in place. Um, so I'm excited with these changes and they seem to be really current. Um, yeah. I guess I want to see the plan for future. Like what is the future reviews looking like and is it going to, going to be another 10 years? Because we like I don't know about you, but I just feel like time's going so quickly that I'm just not I sure. I 10 years in the sector. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I'm just not sure in 10 years that it's going to be current to then. So I feel like I don't know if time's going quicker or things are just changing a lot faster um, and innovating, but. I think it, the yeah the reviews need to be more frequent. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. I agree, and I think like the reviews need to be from those in services. Like it's those educators in services that you know are at the forefront. They they're the ones using the framework. 
like it has to be a user-friendly guide, right? It needs to be able that we can pull it apart how we want, um, that we can really unpack it, we can really embed it, and it's the language, the language that we're constantly talking about. Um, you know, I, I've done three assessment and ratings uh, last year in I know, the past year, six weeks. Wow. <laughs> um, I don't think I slept for six weeks. Um, and, you know, I was fairly new to I had only been in the business for about four months when we got our first two letters and so you know for me it was like a okay well I don't even know these centers yet and these centers don't even know what they've done for the last two years because they've been in COVID mode so we need to unpack all of this to really understand where we're at and so we pulled that early learning framework out and we pulled it apart and we looked at you know what's the practice that we're talking about in that self-assessment where does it fit in the early years learning? where does it fit in the nqs where does it fit in our and our pillars and so really trying to link it all so we can make sure that what we're doing is right because we didn't want to put on a show for the authorised officers. We knew that what we had been doing was really authentic and we wanted to demonstrate that authenticity. And so it was really important for us to try and get that role moving. And so I'm I'm hoping that with this frame, with the updated version, that it's the educators who are using it every day. One, we're actually using it mm-hmm. and it's not this book that stays on the shelf. And two, it's been reviewed by the people that are using it. Yeah. Right? Like that's so important. Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for a lot of the people in our sector who have lived and breathed our sector for a long, long time and now are in coaching roles or they're in mentoring roles or they're in um, a more sort of senior advocacy role in our sector but they've been out of those services for a little while. And so we need them to either come back or they need to pull out these people and really use their, their knowledge um, and their expertise because they are the experts. Our educators are the experts. Yeah, we have to draw so, upon yeah. that knowledge. I, you know, and I remind myself every day, like we have to remember what it's like. <laughs> we have to yes. remember what it's like and what yeah. it, you know, and even for us, like we may draw on that memory of what it was like for us, but what is it like now? Um, That's the piece, right? Yeah. I, I wasn't a centre director during COVID. Mm. But I supported my centre directors. I had 19 centres during COVID Mm -hmm. that I was supporting and I really needed to think about them for every decision I made because I got the luxury to sit at home during lockdown because I was in an ops role and I was looking at data all day and I was running, writing reports and putting emails together and putting coaching sessions together and all this stuff. But I had to remember, and I had to remind myself a few times to go back and go, actually, maybe I can just not do that for now because that's just going to create more pressure. And they've got the pressure of trying to down staff and because children weren't turning up, they needed to re- to try and um, communicate with their, their, their children who were not coming to the centres. And that alone was two or three hours of preparation for a one-hour Zoom call 
Yeah. And so like we had yeah. to remember all of that. So when like centres opened back up and we were back out on the road, I was sort of in a position where I was a little bit shocked. So I was like, oh, my gosh, like I didn't realise how bad it actually was out there. And I had to remind myself and go back into my humble self and be like, you know, you had it good. Pros you had and it cons. safe. Yeah. Right? Um, but then at the same time I was like, but I wasn't there. Like I would have loved to be out on the road while we were doing all that. I would love to be able to be their their shoulder and and help them and whatever it might look like. But there was also that place of I couldn't see multiple services a week. I could have carried COVID through all their centres. Exactly, exactly. One centre to the other. So there was a lot of, I think, um, I think we have to remember that our, when I was a centre director, very different to our centre managers. Now, I don't know if I could read you the job. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't know if I could go back and be as successful as I was four years ago when I walked away I and think, walked into an ultra, right? Yeah, I think in, in my opinion, I think it's time for transformation and we're really advocating for transformation. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier, everything we do needs to be questioned with why we're doing it that way. Yeah. And I think it is a time to really rethink and to think that if there is a better way, an easier way, a simpler way, a way that we can all, you know, come together and feel supported, especially, you know, in your size organisations or people that have that support structure um, for services that don't like, you know, we're offering that support structure to them with network meetings and things like that to come together. But yeah, I think it's a real time for transformation. I'd really encourage services to start asking why. Yeah. 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 I think, I think the fear, the fear of our governing bodies needs to go away because like I've had some really beautiful interactions now um, compared to what I had 10 years ago, very, very different interactions now. Um, And I think we're in a, we're in a good place in that space and it's probably not for everybody, but from, from my experience over the last three years, um, especially coming from a reputable, highly reputable company to a company that nobody really knows about um, and being a small business, um, small provider. Sometimes they there's always this sort of rumour mill where um, the department is really hard on small providers. And I was like, well, I've actually not felt that. Um, yes, I felt more pressure than what I probably did in my large organisation, but also because some of that pressure was taken from my compliance team instead Mm. of me. Whereas now I don't have that. Now it just all sits on me and I have to manage all of it. And so I I think it's time for centres to ask the questions when the authorised officers come out, like why, where do I get that information from? Where does it say that? And not be fearful of being shut down. Then they're not going to. Then the I, I'm finding that the regulatory office is not like that anymore. You can pick up the phone and ask a question, and they will give you the answer, or they will guide you to the answer. Whereas before, you'd ask a question, you'd be fearing the <laughs> knock on the door because you've asked a question that's about a regulation, yeah. and so they're like, "Oh, they're yeah. probably breaching it, so we're going to go visit them." Like we don't get that feeling anymore. Mm. Um, and so I think it, it. I think you're right. It's time for those transformations. And it's time for our sector to have a voice, like, and ask the question, like, ask why, why are we doing it like this? And if it's not working, change it. Yeah, 
And if it's still not working, change it again and yeah. go back to the drawing board because that's critical reflection. That's it. Coming, when things don't work, come back to it and go back and it's back and forwards until you get it right. Yeah, but just make sure that I guess you've got that foundation of that knowledge. Mm. So understand the law, understand the regulations, understand the standards, understand the early years learning framework. Now the early years learning framework 2.0. 2.0. <laughs> um, <laughs> just add that to our to our pile. But yeah, I think it's having that foundational knowledge in order yeah. to make the changes because you've got to know your stuff. When you make a change, you've got to know your stuff. And and um, yeah. even if not, even if nobody else is doing it, but you can justify why you're doing doing it and how it meets those requirements it's fine there is no right or wrong you just need to be able to justify it against the um, legislation that's right and like reach out um i think for for a lot of um they really struggle to reach out to leaders from other organizations because there's this competition, right? Because we're business and, you know, you're down the road and you've got children that should be in my centre, like there's this competition. But I think like if we really think about reaching out to the people around us, we get to know our community better, right? We get to know each other better and we can always help each other out. And I think it's that that sharing of knowledge, like, you know, your – uh, leadership network meetings, like some of my team sit on those and they love it. Like they, they have meetings every month together, the eight of them, and yeah. they love those. But they also sit on yours because it's such different information that they're getting, right? Yeah. They're getting stories from outside of their little world mm-hmm. that they're in um, and they love it. And for some of them, they've made changes in their services based on those network meetings. Yeah, they're really Um, powerful to hear stories from people that are not, yeah, as you said, inside that same bubble. Exactly, and that's really important. And I just think that sometimes we we go back to – I don't know, sometimes I feel like the sector can be a little bit victim, victimised, like they, they feel a little bit like we're the victim and I'm like, we, we're not. Like let's get ahead of that yeah. and let's yeah. really show our community who we are and what we do. Yeah, we've got the power. We do. We really do. Beautiful. Um, well, I just wanted to um, finish off, Mel, just talking about like what are your top three tips <laughs> I haven't even prepped you for this, so I apologise. I'll keep speaking for a little bit longer so you can think. Um, what are your top three tips for someone um, with that, like feeling all of that pressure or leaders or how have you doing? Top three tips that you want to give to people in our sector today. Okay. So I would say really go back. So tip number one is go back and reflect around what is the root cause that's making you feel like that. Because once you know what's making you feel overwhelmed, burnt out, um, pressurized, um, you'll be able to know what the next step is for you. Two is don't be afraid to speak up before it gets too bad. I think for a lot of our educators, they're like, I'm just being silly about my feelings. So I'm just going to keep it in, keep it in, keep it in. And then I explode. Um, and three is know when you need a break, just know it, right. Be able to really think about, okay, well, I'm not being an effective leader right now. I'm not being an effective educator right now. And do a Jacinta Arden, right? She's like, (laughs) I'm not being a great leader right now. So I need to give this away because I've done what I could do. Right. And that's so powerful. 
it's so powerful. You know, I had a I I had a moment last year, um, no, sorry, the year before, before I, I moved from one company to the other, where I wasn't being an effective leader. And I called that very quickly and got on the phone to my general manager and said, I need a break. I need two weeks off. Yeah. Because I cannot keep working at this capacity. I am not useful to anybody. And I knew it because I'd, my phone would ring and I wouldn't pick it up. Wow. Because I didn't want to have that conversation. I didn't even know what the conversation was on the oh. other side of that phone line. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I was at a place where I was like, COVID, I had some family um, issues, you know, I had some loss in my family, significant loss. And I was like, nah, like I I can't, I'm not an effective leader right now. So I had to go, okay. And you know, like um, I'm an advocate for people taking their annual leave. Yep. I hate seeing leave reports and I've got educators with 220 hours of leave. I was like, how have you, how have you not like (laughs) like yeah combusted right um but I just think that I think it's really understanding what's making you feel that way yeah really reflecting on what to do next reaching out for help and learning how to say actually I'm not okay and I just need a break Yep. And we've all had those moments. We've all had those moments. Um, yeah. And I love that. I love that you brought on Jacinda Ardern saying that um, I thought that was such a powerful um, international speech that she gave, um, you know, for women to just stand up as a leader and say, you know what, I'm not being the best leader right now. Um, and yeah, being able to hold yourself accountable. Yeah, that's right. I, I think it always starts with us. I'm a Um, I always talk a lot about, you know, uh, like positive work culture and how to build positive work culture. And I talk a lot to my leaders about, um, which is something that I got from my previous general manager, which was around our leadership shadow. And, you know, that's really important that, yes, we have a shadow and we're at work, but we need to understand what sits behind that. And we can't just put it, we can't cast a shadow of our leadership because we want to be the best leaders that we can be if us ourselves are not okay. Mm-hmm. And so it really does start with us in every level. Yep. And Brene right. Brown's like, get that vulnerability out That's and right. don't be afraid to lead with vulnerability because people, you know, as leaders, we can, whether it's a shadow or whether it's just your coping mechanisms, yeah. um, you know, we all have our way of getting through. But if people don't know what's going on with you, they don't, you know, they can't be empathetic to you either. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Beautiful. That was awesome. Thanks so much for joining <laughs> us, Mel. Um, Thank you for having me. No I've worries. had a really good time. And, you know, I've loved watching um, all the awesome things you've done, especially with the podcast. I think I'm completely up to date now. So I love <laughs> I, that you're listening. I was um, I was behind on a few for a little while there because of all the A&Rs and stuff. And now I'm completely up to date. And, Amazing. you know, like you and, um, and your team are doing a, a great job and I'm really excited excited to I'm always excited to hear your name when it's in like conversations they're like oh yeah I listened to this podcast from Lisa Brown and I was like ah 
I know um, it feels so surreal. Um, like um, we we look at our podcast, like we're almost up to ten thousand listeners now. Like it's insane. It's insane. Um, amazing. Yeah, and we love that we can have you know real people from the sector, passionate people, to come and show show everyone that um, you know our sector is amazing, and we have the power to continue to make it so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for our sector and, you know, I'm going to keep working at it and um, I think I found my my home for the rest of my life in the sector now. So. <laughs> Your forever home, yeah. I love that. <laughs> my forever home, Oh, yeah. well, look out, everyone. Make sure you're looking out for Thrive out there and the beautiful Melissa Falaro. So thank you so much for joining us, Mel. Um, and, yeah, we'll have to touch base with you to see what's happening in your journey later on. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll love it. Thanks for listening to the Everything Early Childhood podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. We read them all. (laughs) To catch all the latest from me, your host, Lisa Brown, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at lisabrown underscore platinum ed. Thanks again for listening. Keep making every moment count and I'll see you next time.